So you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, if you uh, weren't here last week, let me review just a tiny bit. Ephesians chapter 1 begins with this, in verses 3 through 14, this great doxology or stanza of praise. And it really, uh, Paul begins his letter with this great urgency and sense and need to give worship and praise to God. And he says, uh, in fact, we'll read, um, starting in verse 3. And actually, Dan, Dan, could you turn this mic, turn the bass down a bit, or, or Brennan? I'm getting this kind of bad bass feedback up here. Okay, let me begin reading in verse 3, uh, and we'll read down through verse 6. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dearly beloved son. Uh, that's just part of the, of, the, of the stanza, the hymn, the doxology. And there's so much packed in these words. We're going to take a f- few weeks to look through uh, uh, piece by piece what it is that these spiritual blessings are. And last week we talked about that Paul focuses on the spiritual blessings, and it's not that God doesn't also give physical blessings, but he is rejoicing most because of these spiritual blessings. And then in the rest of the doxology, he spells out what those are. And so we're going to look at the blessing of God's glorious grace this morning. And um, really just take a moment to pause on some some aspects of of God's really incredible grace. And in, in so doing, Paul really helps us answer one of the big questions in life, okay? What is some, what is one of the biggest questions in your life? No, it's not what's for lunch. Okay, I know some of you, that was the first thing that came to your mind, what's for lunch? But even bigger than that, it's one of the big questions you ask that you want to know the answer to. You don't have questions? You need questions. What's that? Is God trustworthy? Good, big question. Verna. Why am I here? Yeah, that's actually the one I was thinking of. Any other big questions? There are some big. What does God want me to do? That's right. Those are big questions. Why am I here? What does God want me to do? And and you know, who is this God? What kind of God is he? Can I trust him? Uh, is he random and arbitrary? Or is he somebody that we should follow? Well, Paul, uh, I don't know if he intended, but he really does answer uh, to some extent those questions. So we want to look at at this this morning at the spiritual blessing of God's glorious plan. And in this doxology, just so you can understand the structure a little bit, uh, if you read through this, uh, Paul really unfolds God's spiritual blessings in three kind of time zones, if you will. The first few verses look at God's incredible spiritual blessings that he planned from before the beginning of time. So it really starts from before creation, before the beginning of the world, and he talks about how God intended to bless us. 
Then in the middle of the doxology, he spends time talking about how God unfolds this blessing here and now in the present age. And then he finally ends the doxology with a look towards how God will bring to ultimate completion his, his purpose and his plan. So we're going to look this morning at the first part, the part how God put together this plan from before the foundations of the earth. Uh, and in verse 4, he starts off by saying, even before God made the world, before God, literally, before he laid down its foundation stones, God chose us. God, in some translations, it's, it may say he elected us. Okay? Uh, God, and it's important for us, us to understand, and it's important for Paul as he lays out kind of the basis for why we praise him. He pictures God as this grand architect of, of, all, of all, time and, all time and space. Um, you know, how many of you have ever built something? Have you ever built anything? I mean, from just something small like, you know, a paper airplane to like a large building or I don't know, maybe you're a part of making electronic equipment or, you know, whatever. Um, when, we, when, we, when we're going to build something uh, and we're going to have some part in planning this process, before we can plan or design or even, even be inspired to build something, before all of that, there has to be a purpose. I think a lot of people have this idea that God created stuff because he was bored. I know I've had that thought, that like God was up there with nothing better to do. So we just started thinking, well, I wonder what like, you know, a billion stars would look like. And he just created like a billion stars. Or, you know, I, I like to do some, some, some experiments in microbiology. I think I'll do some amoebas and stuff, you know. And like God was bored, had nothing better to do. So he's just out playing and creating stuff. And some people kind of have this picture or this image of God just randomly creating stuff arbitrarily. And after, you know, a few millennia of doing this, uh, he thought, well, people would be fun. Let's, let's do people. And uh, is that really how God did things? Is that the nature and character of God? That he just randomly is out, you know, bored, nothing better to do. I think I'll just make a universe, you know. It sounds like fun. I don't think so. Just like us, before we build anything, there's always some purpose that lies behind it. Okay? There's always some cause or need or design that we, we purpose to build something. For example, uh, early on, people you know, were sleeping out under the stars, and there were, there were problems with that because it would rain and snow. And they thought, this is kind of a bad thing. And so they determined and purpose to live in a place where the elements would not affect them. And so they built houses. right? And that's why we build houses, because... There are some drawbacks to living out, out of doors. I can do it for a few days. Long term, it has problems, right? Um, man has decided he needs to transport himself. Uh, and so he built, he's, he's built things like cars and trains and airplanes, depending on how far you know, we want to go. In fact, we built machines to take us out into space. Why did we do that? Well, because we were bored? Well, no, because we were curious. We wanted to explore and discover. We wanted to have better understanding of the universe. So there's some purpose behind us building, right? Why would God be any different? Why would God be any less uh, uh, a God who plans and has forethought? This summer, I was back in the States, and I actually like building things. And uh, our daughter and son-in-law needed help with their house, so we got involved with some construction projects. And, and um, 
my my grandkids were all you know constantly at my feet, which made doing construction work a bit dangerous for them and difficult for me. But it was great fun, and they all wanted to build stuff too, and so I gave them power tools. No, actually, not power tools. <laughs> I gave them hand tools and scraps of lumber and bits of stuff and tape and whatever, and they just built some really cool stuff. I have no idea what it was, right? Because for them, building was just a matter of putting boards together, right? And, and stringing together this long chain of junk lumber. And, and at the end, what you got was, well, this long chain of junk lumber, right? Kind of firewood in rearranged forms. Because there was no purpose behind it. They didn't really know what they were doing or had no reason behind what they did. God's not that way. And so... God makes it clear here that before he built anything, before there was anything, God thought through the purpose for why he would build. There is absolutely a grand design uh, behind what God does. All right? And Paul asserts that. He says, before the foundations of the world began, God chose. God, he says in verse 5, that he predetermined ahead of time what he was going to do. In verse 11 it says, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to this plan. So God, in his mind and his wisdom and his infinite wisdom and thinking, started with a purpose and a plan, a reason for creating, a reason for building and making. You know, uh, some of you who are, who are from or have been in England maybe have seen Stonehenge. And one of the big questions is why did, you know, all these hundreds of thousands of years ago, whatever, these people drug these very heavy stones, took a great deal of effort and energy and time to stack these rocks on top of each other, right? And there's all kinds of theories about why. But nobody assumes they just did it because, you know, they had nothing better to do but make stack rocks up, right? Everybody assumes there's some design behind it. When we look at the universe and all that's here, when we look at our own lives... You know, the first thing you might have to say is, there ought to be some reason for this. Why am I here? What is God's grand design and plan? And uh, one of my, I'll share with you one of my pet peeves and kind of an implication of this, is uh, God is not a God who is spontaneous and quirky. All right? And I know there's kind of some trends and moves in Christian thinking that true spirituality is random and quirky and spontaneous. Right? Like people who plan are just anal and, you know, stuck and not really able to follow God. Well, I, I strongly disagree with that. I think God is a God who plans. Uh, he has a plan. And maybe our flaw is that we plan apart from His. Okay, that's always a problem, right? If He has a plan and our plan is quite different. But we ought to be people who are identifying and becoming aware of His plan and who are predetermining in our, our life, who are preparing to be a part of that plan. If you're a person who's living through life not planning, not purposing, not, uh, not executing some kind of design in your life, okay, that's not spiritual. That's lost. Okay, That's confused. Now, you may not know the plan or the design, and you may feel terribly confused. That's actually probably a good place to be. It's a time to say, okay, God, what is your plan? What is the steps that you would have me take? Uh, but I don't buy this thing that, you know, living by the Spirit means having no plan, no agenda, no thought, just randomly letting the Spirit, you know, lead, okay? Uh, you know, you just end up going in circles. 
and confused. God is a God who plans. He's a God of plans. He's a God of design, right? And we, at, we reflect His nature when we become people of plans and organizing and design. Of course, we always have to hold those designs loosely and realize that uh, what counts is His plan. And if we've made plans and we realize they're not really God's plan, we need to give up those plans and uh, follow His. Um, so what is God's plan? What is God's purpose? Well, he says in, down in verse 6, he says that all this purpose and planning and goal, all, this, this work of God, this design of God, is ultimately to the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has poured out or graced out or favored, shown favor upon us who are in his son, the beloved one. The chief purpose of God, I believe, is this. Okay, you want to, here's the big question. Why am I here? Why did God do this? Here is, is, I think, Paul's answer. God did all this to display and demonstrate his nature, specifically the part of God that is loving and gracious and good. Now, the question is, okay, well, we kind of know that we're all supposed to like glorify God with our life and you know, the, the, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, what does that really mean? What does it mean that God had to create this whole huge universe? He had to create mankind. I love the scene. This scene was perfect. God creates. He creates man. And he, I love it. You know, in the skit, it was perfect. Uh, God hands it all over to us, right? And Satan comes along, and what does God do? What did God do? I love that picture. God stood over at the side and watched. God didn't come and beat up Satan. God didn't come and stand between you know, Satan and, and man. God handed it all over to his enemy. That's God's design and plan. Why did he do that? I believe to demonstrate his grace. In other words, here's, here's the deal. God exists as a, as a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through all eternity past before he created anything. And day by day, or however it worked with God, but there's no time, uh, God loved, within the Trinity, loved himself. God poured out and gave his goodness and love and compassion as a father to the son, as a son to the father, somehow the Holy Spirit's in there. And the Trinity is living out love and goodness and kindness. Right? The only deal is, and that's all good and perfect, and, and, uh, and it displayed who God is. The problem with that is that God is perfect goodness in himself. And so, to love goodness with goodness is easy. To love lovingness with love is easy, right? For God to exist and to exhibit within himself love and goodness and kindness and holiness and purity, moral excellence, displays a lot of his character, but it doesn't display all of his character. How could God show grace in the Trinity? Well, he can't. Because grace requires favor that's not deserved. Well, he deserves. He is perfect goodness. He deserves all of the love and goodness and, and glory that he receives. How would he display grace? Well, God had an idea. God had a plan and a thought. I will create this wonderful, perfect kingdom. I will fill it with every possible good thing. And then I will turn it over to my enemy. And he will lead away... My, my most precious 
people that I created in my own image until they hate me and reject me and turn their face against me until mankind kills me. Uh, you know, God, we, we kill God every day. We did it, of course, when we, when we put Jesus on the cross. God sent His own Son. And we so rejected Him that we killed His own Son. But not only that, we've all heard the story, God is dead. Do you think God is dead? Well, He's not really dead, but humanly speaking, He is dead. Because people have killed Him. You know, For the most part, people around the world, in their minds, God is dead. They've killed Him. They've rejected Him. If He exists, they don't care. Uh, if he doesn't exist, they're happy. We have rejected God. Now God can show grace, right? Now God can demonstrate the depth and nature of his character as a gracious God. And he did the unthinkable. He sent his very own son and made his son the payment to make peace with these horrible, wretched creatures he's created to restore and redeem everything. In other words, verse 6 says that he, he has so... Um, praise God for his glorious favor. Grace can also mean favor. His glorious favor upon which he has favored us in his beloved son, Jesus Christ. Okay? I believe that is the grand design of all eternity. That's why we're here. We're here as a huge demonstration of God's incredible loving grace and goodness. Okay? Everything about your life derives from that original purpose and determination of God. And that's what Paul affirms here. Um, well, what is he... What is the heart of this plan? I mean, that's, that, I believe, is what God planned, but what is at the heart of it? Well, he says, God, before the foundations of the world, chose us he elected us uh, for the very specific purpose of, of redeeming and saving us. Okay? A lot of Bibles use the word elect. And, and from this, we get this doctrine we call election. Okay? And you know, the joy is I get to preach in a place where no matter what I say, I'm going to make people angry. Right? Or disagree, at least. Uh, how do we teach about election? Well... Um, it implies some things. So let's, let's think through what, what this means, this idea of choosing. He says, God chose before the foundation of the world, which, by the way, indicates two things. It indicates a, a frame of reference of time. He didn't come up with this plan after the fall. He didn't come up with this plan after the flood or after Israel failed, all right, or after he sent Jesus. This was his plan from the beginning, to choose us, uh, and his choice implies that we need saving, we need choosing, that we have been lost. And he's chosen to do something about that. Um, and it, it, it really implies that God had a will to do this, apart from any, anything in us. Okay? Before, he, before we'd even messed up, he'd already planned to fix it. All right? Uh, let me give some misconceptions. And the doctrine of election, I think, is greatly misunderstood for a lot of reasons. But let me give some mix, what I what I believe are misconceptions. Now, you may think this. And if I tell you that you have a misconception, well, <laughs> you know, you can tell me about it later. Uh, 
First of, first of all, I think it's a misconception, and Paul never says this. Anywhere in Scripture, like Jesus, anywhere in the New Testament, it never says that God randomly chooses some for heaven and chooses others for hell. Okay? Or that his choice is, um, you know, is, to, is, to, is to love some and hate others. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that. Okay? God loves all of his creation. His choice has nothing to do with his love. God loves every single human being the same. Okay? Uh, he loves you just like he loves Jesus. He also loves the most unsaved, lost person in the world equally the same. And his election does not have anything to do with his love for us. In fact, uh, if you look in the Old Testament, Jesus elected Israel. He chose Israel out of all the nations of the world to be his own chosen people. And he says, I have chosen you. Why? to be a blessing to the other nations. He said, I didn't choose you to make you more loved and special and to show how you're my favorite child and how the others are just morons, okay? Um, even though they are. He, he did it so that he could show his love and goodness through Israel to the world. It was to show his love and blessing to the world. And the same thing really is true for us. He chose us, and those who are in Christ, those who know him, we're not loved more but we're rather the channel through which God now flows from God through us to the world. Okay? So election does not imply, this is real important, election does not imply that God loves some and hates others. Okay? There's nowhere in Scripture that teaches that. And certainly this passage doesn't imply that. Um, secondly, another misconception, is that God's choosing somehow removes all human choice from the equation. Okay, and there's some people that teach, you know, that God chooses everything, and humans have no choice or say in the matter at all. Okay? It's not true. Uh, and it's a very complex and mysterious thing how God's will and human will somehow meet. And I wouldn't even begin to try to explain this. Or, or, and honestly, I don't understand it. Okay? But here's a thought. God chose and elected Israel. Are all Israel saved? Well, Roman make, uh, Paul makes it very clear in Romans that the good chunk of Israel is not saved. They were chosen and elected, but they chose not to walk in that state of chosenness. And so today there are many who call themselves children of Abraham, who Paul, Paul says, you're children of the devil. Um, a more New Testament example. Judas is clearly identified as one of the chosen ones. Uh, in fact, it's the same exact word that's used here, one of the elect. Uh, and Jesus says, all of you are chosen, but one of you is a devil. And Jesus knew that he was going to go out a devil. He came in a devil, he was going out a devil. Maybe 12 of them came in as devils. 11 of them responded to their election. One of them did not. Now, I don't, I don't understand this, and I don't know how it all works, as I said. But the fact is true that God does choose us. But there is a point at which we must also choose God. You maybe heard this illustration that there's this vast separation between God and man. And God has taken 10,000 steps to come and find us. But he leaves the last step for us to turn around and take one step toward him. Somehow there's a mix of, of our will in this equation. And when Paul speaks here of our election, he's not discounting or excusing our responsibility to choose God. Okay? Another, another uh, misconception. 
uh, is that, and this is kind of the classic one, that God chooses some will go to heaven and the rest go to hell by God's choice. Okay, in other words, that God went through the list before time he got out the big phone book of all eternity and he went through and he got, you know, heaven, 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 hell, 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 right? And that he has elected some for salvation and he's elected others for destruction. Nowhere in scripture does it say that. God's election is only described in terms of salvation. Okay? God did not elect people to hell. Well, you say, well, then how did they get there? Well, they chose it for themselves. Scripture is very clear that if we end up refusing God's grace and choosing against God, God gives us what we want. Right? God does not choose. He says, I'm not willing. It's not my desire or wish that anyone would perish. But in the end, God will not usurp our will. He will not force himself on us. And so the reality is people do choose hell for themselves. And God will respect their wishes, okay, in the end. But God does not choose hell for anyone. It was never his plan. Never his desire, okay? Now, he knew how things would go. And he knew that there would be those who would bitterly refuse him to the very end. Um... Last thing, and there's five more misconceptions, but the last major one, the election makes us better than everyone else. Okay, Israel fell into this trap. They knew they were elect, they knew that they were God's chosen people, and they therefore felt that they were special and superior to everybody else in the world. Uh, Christians can fall into the same trap. You know, we're saved, we are the blessed ones, and those poor loser unchristians who are not blessed like us, right? Um, that is not the intention of this this doctrine, this truth. Okay? In fact, we had to be exactly that. We had to be extremely humbled that as God's poured out His love to everyone and has showered down His grace on everyone, that somehow with us it produced a changed life. And by God's grace, by God's grace, not by our wisdom, not by our determination, by God's grace, we have fallen into His care. We are not better. We are not superior. Um, we don't deserve this. And the doctrine of election, election of, of choosing should be kept clearly in line with this fact that we are under grace. We don't deserve this. What we get is very much a gift of God. So what is election? Well, short and simple, I believe it's really beyond our capacity of reason and logic uh, to f- explain fully to our complete satisfaction. And the problem is that we think we're smart and we think we're logical. And a lot of people have taken this doctrine, like all doctrines, and we've squeezed it into the little tiny box called human reason and logic and wisdom, right? And we think we can explain God and his activity. And what we end up usually in the end with is just a a very small container full of nonsense that God probably calls a trash can, right? Right? We've got to be very careful that we don't try to explain God too fully. There are things about his activity and action in our lives that are very mysterious. So we've got to be careful that we don't, we don't think we have this figured out or completely comprehended. Um, it, it needs to be seen in its New Testament context. The people, who, the people in Ephesus and in that region who read this letter, as they read it, what would they have thought? Well, here's the setting and here's the context. If you were... And if we were the church in Ephesus and you all were sitting here, you would be a mix 
kind of like we are here, a mixed group of people from a lot of different cultures and backgrounds. And there would be two main groups represented. Over here on this side would be the Jews, okay, who came to Christ through Judaism. Okay, they already know they're elect. Okay, they're over there going, oh yeah, the elect ones, that's us. We've known that ever since Father Abraham. We're the chosen. Okay, all the rest of us over here kind of are looking across the aisle at them going, hmm, we're not the elect. Okay, we are not Israel. We're not God's chosen people. And so some guy stands up and he goes, I got this cool letter from the Apostle Paul. And let's hear what Paul says. And he says, you, you guys have been chosen. God predetermined before the, the creation of the universe to choose you. What are you thinking all of a sudden? Whoa! <laughs> right? Um, all of a sudden, you know, the, the, the audience in Ephesus saw this as a very, uh, their idea of election originally was a very exclusive circle. That it excluded everybody who wasn't in Israel. All of a sudden now, they see election as something very inclusive. We're, we're, we're part of it. If I'm a Greek, if I'm a Roman, if I'm Italian, if I'm French, if I'm Canadian, even those Canadians, you know, it doesn't matter. If I'm American, if I'm Asian, I can be counted as one of God's elect. So it's taking the circle that was very exclusive, now it becomes very inclusive. Everybody's counted. Everybody has the option now of being counted among the chosen. It's interesting, though, in our modern context, in our modern culture, how pe most people tend to see this. Most people tend to see election as something that takes something that's very biblically inclusive, and we see it as something very exclusive, right? And most people get really hung up on this, because all of a sudden we see, well, God chose some, but that means he didn't choose others. And God's counting some out. And how could a good God do that, right? Isn't that what people think? I mean, that's, those, those are the discussions I have with people who don't like the thought of election. But it's to see it outside of its context. All right. Um, another problem is that in our context, I think most of us come from what we would call democratic cultures, democratic societies, which means this. Democracy means this. It means we get to choose everything, including who our, who our leaders are. All right. Leaders are not sovereign authorities who have rights in themselves to lead. They only have a right to lead because we pick them. Leaders don't pick us, right? That's at least a very, being an American, that's in a very kind of lunatic, crazy American mindset, right? That I have rights, I'm in control, I'm God of the universe, and I'll pick who I want to be, you know, my leaders. And when they mess it up, and I'll pick somebody else. Nobody picks me, Right? Well, a biblical audience wouldn't quite have seen things that way, right? They would have been very aware of the place and right of, of sovereign rulers and leaders, emperors and kings. Uh, and they were very grateful if a good and kind king picked you to be part of their kingdom. Okay, you didn't get all bent out of shape about that, right? Uh, sadly, we get so confused about uh, rights to rule and who's really in charge and who's really king. Who's really king? God's king. And if God, who's all-powerful and almighty and sovereign, has chosen us, well, we ought to be just pretty excited about that, right? We shouldn't be getting all ticked off because, you know, he, he left out somebody or something. Um, 
what this truth implies is this, is that, and the important thing is this. However God works it, I don't know. But the important thing is this, that this, this is all a part of God's plan from the beginning of time. God originated it all. He is the origin and beginning of all things. And there's kind of two ways to look at this. And there's one way to say, well, God created stuff, and, but he kind of did it without a plan. It was just this great science experiment. And, you know, man kind of popped out as kind of an afterthought. And, um, you know, God kind of left us to our own way. And uh, he's out there somewhere. And if people are really diligent, really smart, kind of wise, uh, you know, if they try hard enough, they might find God. In fact, God wanted to make it not too hard, so he actually sent Jesus to kind of work it all out for those diligent people who try hard and find God, that there's a way, a path. But it's pretty much up to us. Well, that would be one way of looking at it. Or we can look at it that God, from the very beginning, had this plan to display His grace, that He created us knowing that we would all reject and despise Him. But He chose to enter into this world and to win us back uh, through love and through grace. And He chose to do this. And He chose us. He came to us and He is choosing us to be uh, as we see in a minute, his children. Well, what, what is the intended effect of this? How, what's this what, what should our response be to this idea of God choosing us? Well, it's supposed to be one of praise and great thanksgiving. Uh, we ought to be just awed and, and blessed and thrilled that God has chosen us. Um, you know, it's kind of like if, you, if you're in sixth grade and you get... You get Played to pick, uh, you get picked, chosen to play on the all-city soccer team. Okay, do you think, well, I, this is not fair. You know, all these other people didn't get to be picked, so why do I get to be picked? Is that how sixth graders think about it? No. Like, Yay! I got picked. Right? I never got picked actually. <laughs> I just didn't get picked, so I wanted that. Uh, it's like asking to get married. Uh, asking someone to marry you. Being, it's like being asked, being chosen. You know, this Prince Charming comes into your life and he, he chooses to love you, picks you out of all the girls and wants to marry you. You know, I've yet to hear a girl say, well, what about all the other girls? You know, you, you mean you don't love them? How can I love you when you don't love all the other girls? <laughs> Choosing me and you're, you're, you're hating them. I'm not going to marry a guy that hates girls. No. But I've heard people do that to God's grace. Well, I don't want to serve a God who would choose me and would leave other people out. Okay, it's missing the point, right? It's missing the point. Um, maybe, maybe the best illustration is this. And actually, the word choosing, is its original context was a military one. And it, it was used of a, with the idea of, uh, out of a, a battalion or unit of soldiers... A small handful were picked or chosen for a special military assignment. Uh, and oftentimes chosen for an assignment that would probably lead to their death. Highly risky. Okay, I've chosen you for the special mission. You're probably going to die. But you will save the rest of the group. You'll save the country. You will be a hero. All right. Maybe it's kind of like that. God has chosen us for a special mission a special purpose. 
Okay. Uh, and there's an honor both in being chosen and there's an honor in being chosen to die, to being chosen for a special duty of sacrifice. Uh, not because we're special, but because we see that we're expendable. And our life could be given up for the sake of the grand purpose of the general. Right? Maybe it's like that. And so we ought to feel honored and blessed. We ought to be people who just, as Paul said, feel this incredible praise. This is all to the praise and glory of His grace. The praise of His glorious grace. We had to go, and God has been so gracious to pick me, because I don't deserve it. But He has chosen me, and He has worked out His salvation in my life. Okay, I'm going to go to two things real quick. Uh, the, the glorious purpose of God, I'm not going to really go through this because we don't have time, and we cover it some more later in the book. But the main purpose of God choosing is, first of all, to make us holy and blameless. To make us perfect before himself. He says, before him we will be someday holy and blameless. What that means is this, that God displays his glorious grace not because we are good, holy, and blameless people in ourselves, but the fact is we're really dirty, filthy, wretched people. And God, through the power and the blood of Christ, transforms us into blameless, holy people. Not a righteousness of our own. But it is the display of His glorious grace. It is His grace that makes us able to stand before a holy and righteous God without any blame or fault. And we'll talk about that more throughout the book of Ephesians. Second purpose. He says He predetermined, He planned from before the foundations of the earth that we would be adopted as His children. Uh, That He didn't do this only to display His grace in an impersonal way that we're like some kind of... um, you know, gone wrong science experiment, you know, that in the end he has no compassion or involvement or relationship with. He has, in fact, done this so that we would become into the same exact relationship of love and grace that he has with his Son and with the Holy Spirit within the Trinity. All right? Okay, so we're adopted as sons. That's the purpose. Uh, thirdly, he says that this was... Uh, in, in verse 5 that he, this is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure it was according to his goodwill and pleasure in other words God loved this plan he came up with this idea I don't, I, I don't know how the guy actually comes up with an idea I think I don't know how that works it's, but he was excited about it he had joy in it he goes this is going to be so cool because people are going to really come to know my true nature and character in ways that otherwise would never be seen or evident or visible. He was excited about it. And he unfolds this plan with great joy and delight. Well, what does this mean for us? Well, I think if we go to the next slide, it means that we live, we live in the grand scheme of things. Have you ever used that phrase? Well, in the grand scheme of things. Well, the truth is there is a grand scheme of things. There is a grand scheme. And it's a scheme that goes from before the creation of the universe to the very fulfillment and completion of everything God planned and thought and desired and intended. And His choosing us means that we find ourselves in the grand scheme of things. Um, God is glorified by the working out of His grace. Uh, And primarily, 
God is glorified in the working out of His grace. You know, in my own life, I think, I know I'm supposed to glorify God. Okay, we kind of know that. And this is how oftentimes it works in my own kind of confused thinking. I'm supposed to glorify God. So what that means is I need to go do something, you know, save the world, save Thailand, you know, build a successful ministry, or do successful ministry, or bear fruit, right? I gotta do stuff, and I gotta have the right, and I gotta do it all with the right attitude, and and pray a lot, and be a good person. And if I do all this stuff, God will be glorified. Okay, now some of that is true. And I don't want to say that God doesn't count what I, what we do, but in the grand scheme of things, is that how God is glorified? Well, actually, no, or only partly, only a tiny little bit. God is ultimately glorified in the outworking of His grace in our life. Okay, God's not going to stand us up in heaven before the, all the powers and authorities through all time in history and say, I just want you to know, I was so glorified, Tim, by that little insignificant project you did that you know actually pretty much failed and went nowhere, but you tried so hard, and I was so happy about that. And wow, that's, that's to the praise of my glorious grace. Or does God stand us up before himself in the grand uh, judgment hall of heaven before the powers and authorities and say, look at Tim. He's just a total loser. He's a sinner. He hated me. He was lost and confused. He fell into all kinds of failure and miserable wretchedness. But look at him now. By what I have done in his life, as I have poured out my grace and my love and goodness has transformed him into this amazing different person. Look at what I have done. Now you tell me which gives God more glory. The little thing I did or the huge thing God did? What is to the praise of his glorious grace? See, in the grand scheme of things, we are glorified, God is glorified ultimately by the outworking of his grace in our life. In the end, that's the thing that's most important. Why are you here? Are you here to serve God? Well, yes, God invites us into service, but that's not why you're here. You are here because God wants to pour out His grace in your life. That's why we're here. Okay, It is not so much the things we do. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do things, and, and we should walk in obedience, and we are part of this grand plan. But the things we do that actually will count in the end are the things that we do that see God's glorious grace poured out in the lives of people around us. Okay, that's what matters. That's what matters. Because in the end, that's how God is glorified. So we really need to be, and for me, uh, you know, we need to put our schemes in perspective. We need to put our problems, our failures, our really little lives into perspective. In the grand scheme of things, what are we? Well, in, in our own doing and in our own self, we're not a whole lot. And, and that may be a bit discouraging, and you may think, well, you know, that just makes me feel really small and insignificant. And if that was all it was, was, was our scheme, our little plan, our little life, it would be incredibly insignificant. But God says, but that's not it. You are in the grand scheme of things. I picked you and chose you and have put you in this huge story where my glory and radiance shines. And you are like center stage in the story. 
You see, our significance isn't in what we accomplish. Our significance is what God has accomplished through the cross and through His grace. So, my last encouraging word to you is that we really need to walk in this blessing. Uh, Paul is saying here, Blessed be the God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all these spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms. And here's one of them. You have been chosen by God as, as recipients of His incredible grace. And though you don't deserve it, and though there's nothing in you that, that is good, God is unfolding this incredible good plan and turning you into a, a beautiful creature that is holy and blameless and that is His child. So we need to walk in the blessing of holiness. Realize that we live, we live and possess a righteousness that's not our own. Right? We need to live in the blessing of adoption, knowing that we live in a loving family that we don't deserve. And lastly, we need to live in the blessing of God's purpose, knowing that we are living out a successful purpose and plan. And here's the good part. We're living out a, a successful purpose and plan that we don't have to make happen. Hallelujah. Do you like that? Okay. We get to be successful, and we're not actually responsible to see it happen. I love that part. <laughs> right? Uh, pretty much no matter what I do, if I just keep following Jesus, it's, it's going to be successful in the end, in the grand scheme of things. Even where I completely fail, in the end, there is victory in the grand scheme of things. Let's pray. Father, we do want to just praise. Uh, we want our hearts to be lifted up in praise to your glorious grace. This incredible, spectacular, wondrous thing that you are doing in the unfolding of all history and time to demonstrate your nature and your character as a God of incredible love, of incredible grace of extravagant kindness and goodness. And you've picked us out as objects, as targets of this goodness and kindness. Lord, help us to keep in perspective our own, our own struggles, our own life, our own success and our own failure. That they're just a very, very small part of the grand scheme of things. And then in the heavenly realms, we are a part of a much bigger story a story in which our lives are bringing glory to you, not because of what we have done for you so much, as what you have done in us through Christ, in the Beloved One. So Lord, we want to just praise you even now and give you thanks for this plan as it unfolds day by day in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.
Lord, you are an amazing God.